Cannon, real quick. We we actually did a rise to read at White Station right before COVID. And wasn't it the case that the, the year those third graders ended up having to take their big tests, that there was a massive increase in the number of students that passed? It's another testimonial that I didn't ask for. Right? So, I mean, so A, IPC. <laughs> so IPC's had history with this program before, right? Yes. And we've seen success with it in the past. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That's right. Good. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here tonight uh, for the, the second Wednesday night of our uh, Christian Life Conference this year, Embodied Hope, How Our Theology Meets Us in Our Suffering. I'm so glad Dr. George Robertson drove down the road uh, to be with us tonight from Second Pres. Um, hopefully, you've gotten to know George's ministry over the last six years now. Uh, at Second Pres, George is a graduate of Covenant College, Covenant Theological Seminary, and then Westminster Theological Seminary, where he received his PhD, served at Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, uh, where he and Jackie took in two new people uh, who came to St. Louis in 2004 uh, and have been our friends uh, graciously ever since. Um, and then from there, it was at First Pres Augusta before coming to Pastor Second Pres. But the reason why I wanted you to hear from George tonight uh, is I've heard him give versions of tonight's talk, uh, and it has been such a personal encouragement to me. It's been one of those kind of stakes in the ground uh, that I've come back to as I've wrestled with depression at different points to hear once again uh, about the God who meets us graciously in the midst of our darkness. So I wanted you to hear what George has to say tonight, and I'm so glad that he's here with us. So would you welcome George Robertson, please? I'm supposed to go up there. Hello, hello, hello. Is this working? Are we sound good? Thank you, Mr. Sound Man. And it's so, this is just so fun to me. Thank you for having me. And I look around and see so many good friends and, um, and old friends. My youth director is here from First Pres Tuscumbia. My professor from Covenant Seminary, Mike Malone. And do you remember that, Mike? You look kind of blank. You're just going, oh, hello. I know you, uh, I'm a standout, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but uh, just, we feel at home. We love our friendship and partnership and relationship with, with IPC. And uh, can I be a witness to the Arise to Read? <clears throat> um, let me hear a witness. Uh, this is the closest we get to Pentecostalism in the Presbyterian Church. <clears throat> My wife volunteers at Graham Wood. We, we, have, we have identified Arise to Read as the most strategic ministry partnership we can enter into in this year. And um, we're at Berclair and uh, Sea Isle and Henley and uh, where am I going? Where am I leaving out? Graham Wood and I'm leaving out one. But um, we are, you know, those those statistics are overwhelming. Sixty-six, seventy percent of kids not reading by the fourth grade are going to be incarcerated, going to be on welfare. 
they, they build prisons according to those numbers. They reserve a bed for that kid who's not reading on grade level by fourth grade. But 89% graduation rate among those who read by third grade. Just to reiterate, I know you've heard those numbers tonight, but just to re re reiterate that. And um, we, are, we are people who love children, who have a theology of children, and a theology of shalom. And uh, when anybody is complaining about Memphis, and they're, they're, the most creative thing they can come up with is getting more policemen, have them sign up for a rise to read first. And um, so thank you very much for doing that. And um, please, uh, I can say this because I'm not your pastor. You better have a good reason not to go to that table before you leave. <clears throat> I'm so uh, honored to be here. And I want to call your attention to this, this focusing passage of Scripture for the topic tonight from First Peter Chapter 5, 6, and 7. I hear you've been studying First Peter. And here is a passage that you are familiar with. The Apostle says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up at due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. I didn't look at the... Uh, ESV, I'm reading out of the nearly inspired version, but uh, I think uh, it translates cast as a participle, which is appropriate so that it would read like this, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety upon him that he might sustain you because he cares for you. You hear how he puts together humility and anxiety that the that the that the secret to living free or in a healthy way with anxiety and depression begins with humility um, 1621 a man named Robert Burton published a famous book called the Anatomy of Melancholy. Not necessarily a Christian book. Its first version was 900 pages. Can you imagine that? 900 pages on the Anatomy of Melancholy. And subsequent five versions were longer and longer. But it was a work on depression. And it became the favorite book of British romantics like John Keats and Samuel Johnson and Charles Lamb and Samuel Beckett, they all admired this book, calling it their favorite book, a 900-plus page book on melancholy. Uh, it, was, it was a bestseller because in the 17th century, people were interested in, there was a felt need, how do I deal with depression or melancholy? And, uh, and uh, Burton uh, said, not a Christian book, but he said it's a combination of spiritual uh, solution and physical solution. You are, 
You're, you're, you're one piece. You're a whole person. You need spiritual and, and medical or scientific help. He has some, some, uh, some incredible quotes in this. It is a, apparently, I haven't read uh, the 900 pages, but apparently it has some standout sections. And he says uh, things like this, I write of melancholy while being busy to avoid melancholy. And then listen to this poem. I'll change my state with any wretch thou canst from dungeon fetch my pain's past cure, another hell. I may not in this torment dwell, now desperate I hate my life. Lend me a halter or a knife. All griefs to this are jolly, not so damned as melancholy. Here's a man who knew depression and what it felt like when he was in the pit of it. Later he said, if there is a hell on earth, it is to be found in a melancholy man's heart. I wish I couldn't speak on depression. Um, that's my flesh speaking. Um, I wish I could talk on 17th century or 18th century sacramental uh, preaching. But I never get to ask about that. Uh, my gig has become depression. And uh, that's what people call me about. Not because I have any expertise in it, but I've, I battle it. And uh, I find that there is great strength in sharing it publicly and joining with other pilgrims on the same path. And that's what I essentially want to say to you tonight. That uh, while I don't have profound insight into depression... Uh, in terms of what can be done for you therapeutically. I don't have real insights, of course, in medication. But I can tell you tonight, I understand. And God loves you. And God is able to use your weakness for His glory. And that it's something that can be used for the benefit and blessing of other people. Uh, and uh, there is no shame. The only shame is what uh, the devil may convince you of. But there's no shame in battling it before our gracious Father. So I'm not going to give you a, a detailed exegesis of of First Peter five, six, and seven. It's a it's really a catalytic test uh, with this point, this major point. That uh, dealing with depression, battling depression and anxiety and all versions of it begins with humbling yourself before the Lord. Going to Jesus. Going to Jesus. It sounds Sunday schoolish, I know. But Jesus is the first stop. And he will never disappoint you. He welcomes you. You are, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't condemn your lack of faith. He doesn't say, I 
thought you would be stronger by now. He says, come to me. Are you weary and heavy laden? Finally, you realize the truth about yourself. Come to me. I'm the one who gives, I specialize in bearing the burdens of the weak, of the weary and heavy laden. Just a word of my own testimony. Um, when I was in, uh, I grew up in a, in a, a home with mom and dad and I really didn't, I didn't realize until I was 40 years old that my mother uh, was borderline, a borderline personality. And uh, finally, someone at General Assembly one year, who knows me very well, um, pinned me against the wall. He, did, he put my shoulders against the wall like this. And he said, I better not see you again until you can tell me that you have gone to a therapist and you've dug through all this stuff with your mom. My mom and dad are now passed away. I'm not dishonoring them in public. And my mom was a wounded, damaged person, so I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm speaking compassionately about her. But that was coming out uh, on me in ways that I really didn't realize fully until I was 40, like I said. One, of, uh, one counselor told me once, George, you're not really depressed as much as you are oppressed. Your mother is sitting, stomping on your chest. I don't blame all my problems on my mom. Uh, I have plenty of contribution. But, but by the time I was in third grade, uh, those, that insecurity and that dysfunction was coming out in ways that, was the, that, that really reduced me to uh, severe anxiety. And by the time I was in fifth grade, I was clinically depressed and put into a hospital and um, looked like a a POW, uh, and no one knew what to do for me. I, we burned up the road, 72, between Tuscumbia, Alabama, and Memphis, going to Le Bonheur, having multiple brain scans, every test, must be allergies, must be a brain tumor, must be something, because kids aren't supposed to be depressed. Kids aren't supposed to be anxious. What do you have to be worried about? You're just a kid. Nothing ever discovered. Until, and uh, one of the solutions was to move me out of the public school and into a Christian school. It must be the public school's fault. But that wasn't the problem either. I had as many problems in the Christian school. The difference was the Christian school told me about Jesus. I'd grown up in a, in a church, but uh, it was one of those country club churches. And, uh, you know, it was be good and do good. And, but I hadn't heard about the, the Christ of the cross and the, the Christ as the gentle shepherd. Those, those free will Baptists, I mean, they were showing up Baptists. And they told me about Jesus. George, what you got to do? You just, just call on Jesus. Just call on Jesus. Well, I didn't know who Jesus was. And I didn't know what calling on him was. 
until I was in that hospital. And uh, they were trying out different medications. The medications were brutal in those days. So uh, they tried out a new medication on me, and it put me into one of these, these uh, kind of locked-in states where I, could, I was aware of everything going around on me, but I was just you know, catatonic. It was, it was terrifying. I felt like I was falling, that I was drowning in air. And then I thought, well, maybe I should try out what those Baptists are saying. Jesus, save me. And he did. I'm not sure exactly what happened. But he, he brought me out of that. And the next morning I sat up and I said, uh, I'm better. I'm ready to go home. They thought, he's, he's really gone cuckoo. Send him up to the sixth floor. And uh, they said, no, bring in the psychologist first and see. I, had a, I was working with a very loving psychologist, even though he was a secular man. Uh, and... Uh, I, I had so many caring people who were just, would just listen to me, which is the best thing that could have been done for me. And uh, he came in and uh, listened to me, and I said, uh, I'm better. Jesus made me better. Uh, Jesus saved me. I didn't know about sin either. Uh, I just called him to save me. I meant save me, save my life. Later I learned about sin. I needed that too. But I learned first that he was a savior of my body and my mind. And so I shared that with the, the psychologist and he was standing against the wall and he had his arms like this and he just slid down the wall. And he said, I don't understand it. But it sounds real. So I'll let you go. I'll let you, I'll, I'll discharge you. But I'm going to check on you uh, in, uh, every week for a month and see how you're doing and he eventually discharged me now I, I'd like to say that I never again struggled with anxiety never again battled depression I lived a victorious Christian life for the rest of my days but that's not true the, the difference is that I struggle with hope before I had no hope and um, the difference is that I don't just call on Jesus to save me in that desperate hour. I, I have to call on him every day. And he never disappoints. I want to encourage you uh, to think about uh, depression. And uh, even if you don't struggle with it, uh, to be sensitized to those around you who might. And uh, I just want to, uh, to organize what I'm going to say under two points that I think arise out of this text. That you go to Jesus when something specific depresses you. And you go to Jesus when you're depressed for nothing in particular. Go to Jesus when something specific depresses you. The experts call that episodic depression. And uh, these are the times that the psalmist reminds us uh, are times to seek the Lord. When you know you have 
uh, a reason to be depressed. You know your enemy. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91.1 Whenever you have something that is specifically depressing you, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Not a mighty hand that is ready to judge you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because you need might. You need might for that specific situation. That's not our first instinct, is it, as people in our subculture. The first instinct is, how am I going to fix this? I've got a problem. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to call somebody who can fix it. But what does James say? Any among you sick, call on the elders. That sounded as crazy then as it does now. But God is saying, think about me, for, come to me first. Not that those, not, it's not that you never go to the doctors, never go to the experts, but come to me first. When something specific is depressing you, go under the mighty hand of your father uh, to him for aid. And, and sometimes you, 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 there are specific things that accumulate. And then all of a sudden, the straw breaks the camel's back and you are depressed. And you're not aware, you, you haven't taken stock. We live so quickly. We live in such a loud world that we don't always appreciate how much has accumulated on us and it then results in depression. I remember uh, a number of years ago, a fellow came to me who was a, one of those vivacious, you know, extroverted, always happy people that just, just drives you crazy, right? Not really, but it was just one of these, never, he never had a bad day. But he was, he said, I don't recognize myself, I'm, I'm just, I can't, I, I, I'm going to doctor after doctor, I think it must be something, it must be chemically off, I must have a health problem, I must have a... And he checked out uh, medically. I'm getting the sleep I need. I'm having my devotions. I'm, I'm going to worship. I'm not having an affair. I'm not hiding my sin. But I said, Scott, just think for a minute what you've been through. In your life, in just the last few years, your father died prematurely. You've moved, and now you're renovating a new home. You've changed jobs, then you lost that job, and a few weeks ago you cut off two fingers in a word-working accident. There would be something wrong with you if you weren't a little bit depressed. But you know how that feels sometimes. It just sneaks up on you. When you know what it is, take it to the Lord. Identify... What is the source of your depression? Ask if there is a source first. Cast your anxiety upon the Lord, uh, Peter says. Uh, Ask, is it something in my past? Ask with the help of a friend or a therapist. Is there something in my past? Maybe something I've repressed. Maybe something I just haven't taken stock of. Maybe something I thought was normal. And then somebody helping reflect on you says, no, that's just not quite normal. 
There's a Canadian study that found that men who lost a parent, especially a father, before age 17 are more likely than others to experience depression in later life. There's a similar study that says a woman who has lost her mother before age 11 tended to make a profound impact on her self-esteem, sense of security, feeling of competence. Some other studies I've found demonstrated that children between 5 and 10 whose parents separated, divorced, experienced a major illness, punished their children excessively, rejected them, or showed favoritism to other siblings, were more likely later in life to experience depressive, suicidal thoughts. And then there are all the other things that we know about. Death of a loved one, a major health crisis, a major move, a significant financial loss. These three big ideas, major transitions, parental instability, or abandonment in your past, major contributors to depression. Maybe it's something presently that you are going through. David Burns' 1980 study in Psychology Today called the perfectionist script for self-defeat. He, leads, he links uh, perfectionistic personalities with depression because he said perfectionists see themselves as either a brilliant success or a total failure because they're all or nothing thinkers. Maybe some of you heard the NPR uh, focus on a new book that can, has uh, just been published by Thomas Coran. Uh, it's called The Perfection Trap. Embracing the power of good enough. He said, perfectionism is about deficit. It's about lack. It's we're not good enough. He, has a, he, he talks about a, a study that he and his uh, research assistants conducted when they brought in a, a bunch of young people, zealous college students, and they said, we're going to put you all on these bikes. We want you to cover a certain number of miles in a certain time period. Well, he said they all just got after it. And then they clicked at the end and they said, all of you failed. They didn't really, but he just told them, you all failed. He put them back on the bikes and he said, we're going to let you try again. And the perfectionists in the room didn't even try. Because they'd already experienced such shame and defeat that they withdrew from the challenge to protect themselves from more. He says perfectionism is the, is the hidden pandemic of our world. I don't know about the rest of the world, but it certainly is in Memphis. Certainly among our subculture. You've got to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, just quit trying. And we live, we can live in a state of perpetual defeat and depression. Maybe that's a contribution to your depression. Or maybe it's the future that depresses you. 24-hour news traffics in keeping us terrified and defeated and depressed for something that's going to happen in the future. We're just on the precipice. We're on the brink. Just wait until tomorrow. Somebody's going to push the button. The whole financial world's going to fall apart. We're going to... 
It sells. And we live in a constant state of fear and depression. Contrary to our theology. When we have the last book of the Bible written to tell us Jesus wins. Uh, so we live, we maybe, maybe it's these, maybe that is the source of your depression. Maybe it's episodic. Maybe it's something you can put your finger on. And your anxiety can be traced to something in your past, something in your present, something that you're fearing for the future, all three combined. What do you do with that? Submit it to a sovereign God and claim His promises. I know it sounds simplistic, but it works. When we live out our theology, cast all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. He will care for you. Cast your anxiety upon the Lord and claim those promises. I will complete the good work that I began in you. I will lift your head. I will never put you to shame. Claim those, find a promise and claim those promises. You know, in, in, the, in, in, in COVID, um, I... Uh, uh, I, I was I was so desperate. I really started believing biblical promises, and uh, I thought maybe I'll put this stuff to work that I've been preaching to other people. And so, I would, Jackie would look up in the middle, in the middle of the night, and the, my phone would be glowing. Who are you texting? I'm not texting. I'm reading scripture. That's a problem, you know, with our phones. But I, but I, I would I would just I would just plop down in the Psalms, and I would say, give me a promise. And one short enough that I could remember, that I could perseverate on through the whole night and remember. Do you know the Lord helped? He does. Submit whatever is causing you anxiety to the Lord and claim His promises. If God was able to turn the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ into the greatest redemptive and hopeful event of all times. Can he not take whatever is in your past or whatever is in your present or whatever is in your future and turn it to good, cause it to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes? Yes, yes, there can be something, but what if there's nothing in particular? What if you're just depressed? Uh, several years ago, I found uh, a, a sermon by um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon on 1 Peter 1, 6, and, uh, which in the King James is something like, uh, you, you may be in heaviness, it needs be, you may be, you may needs be in heaviness, you may needs be in heaviness, and only Charles Spurgeon could could preach, uh, you know, 4,000 words on you must needs be in heaviness. But this, is a, this was his personal testimony. He was very, you know, long before it was cool, he was vulnerable in the pulpit. 
and shared freely with his people. Thousands and thousands of people. In the, in the age of ascendancy, the age of strength of the Victorian Empire. And Spurgeon would say things like, I'm about to read to you. I was lying upon my couch during this last week and my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for. But a very slight thing will move me to tears just now. He was still in that state of depression as he was preaching and a kind friend was telling me of some poor old soul living near who was suffering very great pain and yet she was full of joy and rejoicing. You ever had a friend like that? I was so distressed by the hearing of that story and felt so ashamed of myself that I didn't know what to do, wondering why I should be in such a state as this, while this poor woman who had a terrible cancer and was in the most frightful agony could nevertheless rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And in a moment, this text flashed upon my mind with its real meaning. I am sure it is its real meaning. Read it over and over again and you will see I am not wrong. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness. It does not say, though now for a season ye are suffering pain. Though now for a season you are poor, but you are in heaviness. Your spirits are taken away from you. You are made to weep. You cannot bear your pain. You are brought to the very dust of death and wish that you might die. Your faith itself seems as if it would fail you. That is the thing for which there is a needs be. That is what my text declares. That there is an absolute needs be. That sometimes the Christian should not endure his sufferings with a gallant and joyous heart. There is a needs be that sometimes his spirit should sink within him. And that he should become even as a little child smitten beneath the hand of God. Ah, beloved, we sometimes talk about the rod, but it is one thing to see the rod and is another thing to feel it. And many a time have we said within ourselves, if I did not feel so low-spirited as I now do, I should not mind this affliction. And what is that but saying? If I did not feel the rod, I should not mind it? It is just how you feel. That is, after all, the pith and marrow of your affliction. It is that breaking down of the spirit, that pulling down of the strong man that is the very fester of the soreness of God's scourging, the blueness of the wound whereby the soul is made better. I think this one idea has been enough to be food for me many a day. And there may be some child of God here to whom it may bring some slight portion of comfort. We will yet again dwell upon it, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. you hear what Spurgeon is saying? There may not be any particular reason you are suffering depression except that God has said, it's time. Ye needs be in heaviness so that you can feel me sustaining you. Or, ye needs be in heaviness because I want to demonstrate to my cosmic accusers that this one, though my, my days are dark, this one, though he doesn't see me, though he is in the dust, still loves me despite it because my love in him is stronger than the torments of hell. Who knows what God is doing in your time of depression? But here is what you can be sure of. 
He's not punishing you. He's using it for some redemptive reason. It's not that your faith is faulty. It's not that you are defective. The God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If he has laid this upon you at this moment, it's because he loves you. He has a redemptive plan for it. And he's using it in some way to shame his and your cosmic enemies. Well, what do you do in those times when you are feeling depression for no clear reason? Um, talk about it. Tell somebody you know loves you. It doesn't matter whether they're an expert in depression or not, but somebody you know who will not be a Job's friend. That is not someone who will say, well, you must be doing something wrong. Or there must be unrepentant sin. But who will sit with you in it? Now, sometimes it's necessary to go through that battery of questions to help you rule those things out. I remember the, the first person I ever went to talk to about my depression, I didn't know what to call it then, I just said, I'm sad, I'm worried, was the, the leader of my little Christian school, Brother Tom. He was the pastor of the church and the head of our Christian school. And uh, I went to, I said, Brother Tom, I'm just so sad, I can't quit crying. I'm worried. Well, George, are you having your devotions? Yes, I'm having my devotions. But George, is there any unconfessed sin that you need to know, sir? Are you, are you going to church? You're worshiping? Yes, sir. Is your health good? I just had my sports physical, Brother Tom. After a battery of very gently asked questions, he said, sometimes you just get down and the devil takes advantage of that. So we just need to pray for you. And we need to keep talking with each other until the Lord leads you out of this. I wrote that sentence down then. I've carried it with me ever since. You need somebody like that. And somebody who will guide you to that kind of holistic examination or that an interconnected team that can help you. If you haven't been to a physician for a while, you need to have a physical. I have a thyroid condition. I have a, I have a, I have a, I take medication for my thyroid. I take medication for my, for my depression. It doesn't make me happy clappy all the time. It just cuts down on the low lows and it, it, it helps me feel sadness normally. Uh, you, need to, you, you, you need to go to your pastor. You need to have friends. You need to go to a counselor. You're a whole person fearfully and wonderfully made. Beautifully stitched together. There's no one person, one expert is going to do... You need a team of people around you to help you become holistically healthy. first century, there was a first century monk named John Cassian 
who was able to articulate physiological explanations for depression in addition to the possibility of evil spirits. Martin Luther recognized he needed scripture and prayer as well as good sleep and medicine and beer for his depression. Sometimes lots of beer. <laughs> we get a witness. You know, it was in the 18th century that when we started dividing human beings as body and soul, science and faith, that we started pulling people apart and not dealing with them so holistically. Make sure you're exercising. Make sure you're eating well. Make sure the right people are speaking into your soul. Have a team of people who help you and encourage you. Who remind you that the Lord is one who cares for you. I want to encourage you. I want to take some, I'll take some questions. We can have some discussion in a minute. But I do want to encourage you that that, that uh, battling depression and anxiety, even when you, you don't have any clear reason for it. There have been times lately, sometimes my dad died a few weeks ago. Sometimes I'm out of the blue. I have that grief. You know what that's like. There are other times when the sun is shining, everything's going my way, and I'm depressed. And those are the times when I'm tempted to think I'm defective. I'm an embarrassment to Jesus. I'm disqualified. But I want to encourage you that uh, if David was not disqualified, if Jeremiah was not disqualified, Elijah not disqualified, if the Lord Jesus himself, who spoke the Psalms and who experienced that that, that desperate loneliness in the garden, if they were not disqualified, then you're not disqualified. In fact, battling with depression and anxiety qualifies you as a wounded healer for other people. There's a little play by Thornton Wilder that's uh, based on that story in John 5 about the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. You remember he, he kept going to the pool of Bethesda. And the idea was that when the angel troubled the waters, whoever was in there first would be healed. And uh, Thornton Wilder imagines that there was a physician in that day. And uh, that physician had a deep wound. It's never mentioned what it is. He had a deep wound and he would go by the pool of Bethesda and he would hope that he could be the first in uh, and be healed. But he would never go ahead of the lame and his other patients. He, he couldn't do that. And there was always somebody ahead of him. So one day he was going by there and there was nobody there. Or at least nobody close. And the angel troubled the water. And he bolted toward the water, and before he could get there, an angel stopped him and prevented him from going. And 
giving time to the other person to drag himself from a farther distance and get into the pool and steal the healing. And, and the physician complains to the angel. And the angel said this to him. Without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers serve. Brothers and sisters, whatever wound you have has been given to you as a stewardship, a qualifier, a, a, a tool to be used for the healing of others. Whatever wound you have been given has been entrusted to you so that you can say to another wounded soul, I know how it feels and you're not alone. And in so doing, you represent the Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, the God who is with us. So, let us live counterculturally in our part of the world. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. And shouting from the rooftops, I am needy, I am wounded, I am weak. Come let me show you my Savior who is absolutely strong and who will never, ever fail you. Let me uh, pray and then if you have any questions or comments, I would welcome them. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this lovely congregation. Thank you, Lord, for knitting our hearts together. Thank you for their dear pastor and his wife, his children, who are such good friends of ours and uh, themselves, uh, wounded healers in this church and in our community. Lord, uh, I pray tonight for that sister or brother in this room or that sister or brother who is, will listen to this in the future who thinks that uh, they're disqualified because of their wound or because of their perceived weakness. I pray, Lord, that you would transform that shame into boldness for bragging on Jesus. Uh, uh, bragging like Paul did that uh, your grace is made perfect, it's made beautiful, it's made complete in weakness. Oh Lord, we submit ourselves to you afresh and ask that you would get a name for yourself in us, not because of our strengths and perfections, but because our imperfections and our weaknesses reveal a wonderful Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
anything else? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to thank you for sharing that. As someone who's been down those roads for decades, it's encouraging to hear another believer talk so openly about it. And I wondered if you could expand a, a little bit uh, on the relationship between counseling uh, with a therapist, talking with a pastor, talking with a spouse or a friend. I think sometimes it's hard to know kind of what direction that should go. Yeah. I think you should always start with your pastor. Especially when you have a good one. And lots of good ones. A reliable one. And one who, a skilled physician of the soul, who can kind of help you sort the laundry and say, okay, I think you, you know, make sure there's a physician checking on you. And then here is the, what you've told me sounds like this need for counseling. So, you know, over the last two weeks, I've had someone who, who, uh, had just good old-fashioned depression and um, uh, a, a general counselor was going to be good. Somebody who can... So in addition to Scripture and prayer and the sacraments, it's the other thing. I mean, I've, you know, I always counsel, don't neglect worship and don't neglect the Lord's Supper. The Lord expedites your healing and your in your sanctification by the, the means of grace. But I said, you also need somebody who can, can give you some tools for different self-talk. But on the other hand, I had someone in my office who had suffered serious trauma. Uh, not the kind, you know, we're, we're throwing trauma around a lot these days. But this was a truly traumatic set of experiences. I said, I want you to go to this person who is uh, skilled in trauma counseling in particular. That, so the pastor can be your uh, general practitioner to help kind of guide you and, and help you think about a team that can address uh, particular needs. You know, I don't, I don't believe that one style of counseling uh, is the only way, but that God has given us various sources and sometimes that counselor could be secular but if you're under the care of your pastor you know uh, you're not going to be thrown to the wolves is that helpful thanks for the question okay there we go could you join me thanks in everybody George Next week, our own Parker Tennant will be talking about, having heard Kelly and George, we'll talk about lament, which is God's way in Scripture to voice some of these things to him, as well as to do so in community. How do we sorrow together in community? So please do come back next week, okay? You're dismissed. Thank you.